Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and make your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. Send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. Do you ever have those days, those just bad hardware days? Every once in a while, I feel like really more than anything, Steve, I feel like I get way luckier than I should. Like I do all the wrong, I do things the wrong way and somehow it still works out in my favor. So I had my first bad hardware day in a very long time That's and it was full. It was I feel full like you firsts. had bad, like three bad hardware days in the past like six months. Yeah, but not like this. Like those are, oh, okay. those are like, you know, Eh, things warm-ups. went wrong, like the power went out or, you know, like that, those sorts of things where those were things outside of my control. These were things I actually did to myself. Okay. All right. Um, tell me about the, tell me about the stuff that you screwed up yourself. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so <laughs> it started off, I, as it always does, it starts off simply enough. You're like, oh, well, I'm just going to do this thing. So I had bought two hard drives on Black Friday to, um, two SSDs, and I just hadn't gotten around to putting them into one of the computers that I have uh, kicking around for doing some AI stuff. And finally, I was like, oh, no, you know what? It's it's Friday before Christmas. I've got the day off. I'm just going to you know do this, and it'll be really quick, right? So I, I start in on it, and I'm like, oh, well, I can't do this because there was some... There was something preventing me from doing it. I was like out of ports or my power supply didn't have enough cables or something like that. So mm-hmm. that necessitated a motherboard swap. Uh, this project so is start, getting deep. I, yeah. So I, I pull out the pull out the motherboards, I swap it, and uh, of course that means that I've also now changed the the CPU. Like basically it was a full guts swap minus the uh, GPU and the the hard drives that were in there. So I plug everything back in and it comes on, but the part of the problem was it seemed like it was intermittent whether the machine would come on. Like three out of the four times it would power up and boot fine. Uh And then one of the four times it wouldn't. So I started doing just like, well, maybe I'm overdrawing the the amount of power in here. So I start unplugging fans because there's like six or seven case fans. And that seemed to do something. And so I was like, oh, well, I've got another... I've got another power supply in this other case over here. It's only like 70 or 100 watts more, but you know that should be enough because it seems like unplugging four of the fans gets me over this hump. Mm-hmm. So I pull out the, the uh, power supply and I start plugging everything back in. And uh, this is the cautionary part of the tale. So I like fully modular power supplies and this yes. particular power supply is a different brand than the one that I was putting in there. Normally, not that big of a problem because they often label their their cables. Yeah. In this case, there was no labeling of the cables. They were just simply, they weren't even the nice braided cables. They were just, you know, wire, like plastic wires. Yeah. And uh, so it turns out <laughs> they're not all equal. And I, I plugged in one of the peripheral ones to my fan controller and turned on the computer and immediately fried it like smoke everywhere. And what, what, wait, I was, fried what the power supply or the, comp- the, the, no, the fan controller, because the, uh, so when I examined them, the, when you flip over the, the pins that go into the motherboard itself, or sorry, into the power supply itself, mm-hmm. uh, one of the brands had one hole. So there's six, there's six slots for, um, for the little pins, yeah, right? It's like a Molex connector. Right. One of them had uh, an empty slot, and mm-hmm. the other one had two empty slots. And not knowing, what, but again, I had already fried my, oh, my fan controller I at this s- point. So you repurposed the little dongle cables from the old power supply with the new one? Not on purpose. I not on purpose. Right? Okay. That, that was the whole bit about I couldn't tell the cables apart, and Got I it. did not... 
I'm at the point where like I had just started this project to swap two hard drives and yeah. now I've got cables everywhere. Right. So well, it's because you're doing the power I, supply because you had to do the motherboard after you did that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So then I, I finally get that taken care of. I'm down a fan controller, whatever, go get some more Molexes. Things are okay. Uh, except that now I start having like soft lockups on the CPU and I think about, oh yeah, remember a couple of months ago I was complaining to you. I don't think it ever made it on the show, but I was talking about how I was having soft lockups on one of my CPUs. So I went and benched that one and grabbed an old Ryzen 7 um, and threw that in there or attempted to, and I bent the pins. I've never done that. I bent the pins on the CPU. Um, and so I very gingerly got like tweezers and mm -hmm. I bent them back into place just, just very, very gently. Um, and eventually after about a half hour of really intense concentration, I actually got the, it to socket back in. Nice. And yeah, yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, I ended up, what was the other thing? There was another thing that well, hold on. Did the CPU I, work? The CPU is working, uh, apparently. Well, so <laughs> in the computer boots. Um, but I ended up blowing up something else that I don't remember off the top of my head. It was only notable because my wife always says that bad things happen in threes. So the, the cautionary tale here is be very, very careful when you're swapping your power supply cables. That, that should be like a duh moment, but you know, there's also a lesson in there about lives. scope creep somewhere. I don't know where or Maybe. how or why I think that, but <laughs> well, if, if you've got your own hardware situation situated, we move on to some feedback and fix some problems for some other people, you think? Yeah, why not? Our first email comes in from Joe. Joe writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I enjoyed the VM discussion with the storage considerations. If you're moving to an on-prem, here are some few considerations I didn't really mention in the discussion. First, your virtual isolation environment is going to be set up in high availability format, i.e. server fault redundancy, that you need to have central storage for all the VMs that are mounted between the servers. If HA is not in the budget, then the consideration for backups are fast enough. I agree with Steve that having the OS images on the server and the data directory mounted in the storage device is the way to go. Reason one, the file storage makes it easier to manage the files and backup the important data. Reason two, if any corruption for whatever reason happens on the kernel, a bad update, etc., then it's cleaner just to replace the VM with a new golden image. Reason three, Kernel, lagging, database, compute tasks will often benefit from an SSD on the server system while the data files can be read off a slower storage array to help with performance versus the entire system running off of the storage array. This might take a bit easier. This might make it easier to have larger VDEVs like five or more drives in a RAID Z2. This can save you the budget in the long run. I ran the same strategy for Docker deployments of Nextcloud. A few references are here and he links to his GitHub with some Docker Compose for the Nextcloud. You don't need to use containers to have that separation of compute and data storage. Just another tip. I heard a lot of Dell and NetApp on the show seemingly for JBot systems mount over a SAS cable or DAS workload. That's fine, but I'd also re recommend reaching out to IX Systems who can offer ZFS systems out of the box. They have both servers and their TrueNAS line of storage systems. While in the enterprise, it can get pricey. They have a lot more entry-level storage systems. Otherwise, you can just get a JBOD from Supermicro 45 drives, which would work with the same LSI Broadcom expansion card, likely for less. Finally, just a reminder, do ensure that the SAS cards are ideally a JBOD card that can be set in JBOD mode if you're going to be using ZFS RAID at the file system layer. Thanks for all the show and insights, Joe. So, Steve, what'd you think? Joe have some good things to point out for us. Yeah, I think a bunch of this stuff was stuff that we knew. And one of the downsides of dealing with stuff frequently is you make some certain assumptions on accident, right? You don't necessarily omit things like, hey, make sure that you're using JBOD instead of RAID because when you've been working with it long enough, you just know, hey, I shouldn't use a RAID card because now I've got two things trying to lie to your file system, which needs to know what's happening. So, so let me ask you this. What are your thoughts on using like a, like a, like a raid, like you put each of the disks in their own separate raid array in like a raid zero or something. Isn't that, isn't that, I mean, you'll have like the little header information that says, Hey, this belongs to a card. And it's true that you're still going to have to have that physical card, but in theory, 
that shouldn't mess with anything of what ZFS is doing because it still has the ability to write the direct data to the disks. No, it doesn't actually. It doesn't. You actually no, it does not. If you if you put a RAID layer on top of it, what actually happens is the RAID card will often have some sort of buffer. And what will happen is the RAID card will say, hey, it's written out to the disk and tells ZFS that uh, you know your data is okay. But it's, but it's not actually. Oh. And it's lies, right? So the RAID card, so part of what Joe here is getting at is if you use RAID, the RAID makes assumptions for the file system, whereas a file system like ZFS needs to be in total control in order for things to work properly. Hmm. So other things that it definitely does is it will lie to you about sector size and it will do this for various compatibility reasons or whatever. One of the famous things is uh, it used to lie to the operating system and say, hey, this is 512 uh, bytes in the sector size, even if it was 4K, because... <laughs> some operating systems needed to have like needed to be on a faked 512 byte file sector size that is really really bad for performance so uh raid cards or anything that gets in the way of direct disk access between the uh, software stack in this case zfs is just a terrible idea uh, it will it will function but you know if you're talking about trying to get the best out of it you definitely if you if you're going zfs because you're trying to avoid bit rot or something on the similar nature you can't you can't have three different things so like you've got the bios you've got the raid card and you've got zfs all of which are trying to talk about the same hardware and if they don't all agree for whatever reason you're in trouble when it comes to bit rot or any other kind of data integrity issue too many cooks in the kitchen yep what do you think about the his uh, kernel logging DB compute tasks will benefit from the SSD while the data can read slower off of a storage array? Is that it depends on the use case, right? Depends on the deployment. Some things will be very tolerable of that because it'll just take a second for it to go and look or fetch the data. Other things I would imagine would be rather unresponsive to to the idea of having its data stored separately. Database intensive things come to mind. Yeah, well, it really depends, right? Um, so a database in particular, um, which he calls out here, should be on the SSD because you want that to be fast access. However, if you're loading it all into RAM, then your startup time is a little slow and your warm-up time may be a little slow. But once it's in RAM, things will be as quick as they would be off of disk because that's the way that the system is configured to run. One eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six sixty four. The email live at KNOX, live at asknoahshow.com. I, I suppose that's going to happen from time to time. Excellent feedback, Joe. Really appreciate you writing in. Like Steve said, it's really great to get some of the things that we would skim over and go, oh, uh, you know, like of course. But then it's good to kind of circle back. You know, the other thing we didn't really address high availability, Steve, that may be something to circle back to in a future episode for somebody who is, is hearing that term or, or, or listening to this and saying, what is central storage? Why is high availability? We talk about high availability. We're saying that it's not acceptable for the server, for a server to go down. So we need some sort of process or mechanism in the way of a place to go to. If our primary thing goes down, can you talk about why that's important or why that's beneficial and why central central storage is a necessary component of of running high availability so essentially when we talk about vms or really any service but particularly we're talking about vms in this case what you're talking about is if you have a single vm server and the the server goes down all of the vms that are on that server are obviously offline if you have something that is absolutely critical for you for whatever reason and you can't you don't want to have any downtime or you want to make maintenance your your life easier when you're doing maintenance tasks you need to have a secondary server that can handle the load if the first server goes down the let's say the the prescribed way to do that is to have the storage not on the machine itself so what this allows you to do is you point both machines at a central set of disks and the hypervisor in this case will know which VM is running on which host 
And if one of the hosts goes down, it simply reconnects the storage from host A to host B and turns the VM on. In some cases, it's called vMotion. Um, if it detects in time, if the VM, if the V server literally just disappears, there'll be a warm up time where the host will have to figure out, hey, the other side is down and now I need to pick up the load. 1-855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on this and I'll continue to keep everybody in the loop as we make our migration to the data center. It's it's a fun opportunity to kind of put this stuff into practice at a larger scale. Our second email comes in tonight from Rod. Rod writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, I just finished up episode 367 and I love the talk of setting up a vHost. I'm currently a Proxmox user, but I'm in the process of simplifying to improve repeatability. I have a test vHost set up running the Ubuntu server. On the host, there is a two disk mirror ZFS pool with a couple of data sets being replicated from my main server. Photos, music, Nextcloud data, Docker configs, etc. What's the most efficient method to pass these data sets through to the VMs? Currently, I'm just using NFS shares from the vHost to the VMs. I'm running into a lot of permissions errors and issues with containers that do databases. There has to be a better way than NFS mounts. Any suggestions? So if you woke up in Rod's shoes, what would you do, Steve? So efficient is a kind of a loaded term. I think... I think the idea here is more simplistic. Like what is what is a primitive that I can get at instead of using a network file system? I think that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve here. The answer to this is if you're using centralized storage, you might use something like iSCSI or something similar where you're exporting an entire block device as far as the receiving machine is concerned. If you're talking about, in this case, we're talking about a host that has two disks on it and the VMs are just feeding off that disk. The other approach that you could take other than NFS is to create different Zvols and pass those um, the data sets directly into the VM as block devices. So KVM can handle this for sure. And essentially what you're doing is you're just passing in a block device into, into the VM and giving it kind of raw access to, to the disk as ZFS is allowing it. So couple things here. So if you're if it's a small like instance level data that you're that you're running, one could just create a QCOW2 file and store the data there. He mentions that he's got a couple of databases and we talked I think last week actually we were talking about how that's not necessarily ideal. So one of the things you can do is you can install dedicated disks or set up in your on your host machine a VDEV that has like a mirrored pool, and then you can pass that device directly through to the VMs as well to allow it to write directly onto a disk. So for example, if you had something that was very database intensive, you might say, hey, these two, so maybe I've got one, maybe I've got a pair of SSDs and that's set up in a single VDEV and that's my boot pool and, and little instant storage, on-prem storage stuff. And then maybe I've got a separate set of disks that are in a pair that, are I'm just using for the database storage and you could you could pass that device through and allow that that storage device or the VM to write directly to the storage device. Um Steve thoughts on a driver. So one of the things I forgot to mention it is that there's direct file system access in KVM via something called the 9P driver and that essentially allows you to have direct uh, file system access from your VM to your host. And really? So, yep. Um, that's existed for a long, long time. It's not default in any of the RHEL. You'd have to go and, and figure out how to get that installed. But I am 99% sure it is in the Ubuntu repos, if not installed by default. Here's something else. You just kind of sporadically chuckled something in the back of my mind loose. We, when we talk about drivers, one of the things that Red Hat has done that has been a godsend to dudes like me in the field is they came out with the Vert I.O. drivers. And so this is basically a driver set for Windows boxes that make it understand how to best run inside of a KVM virtualized environment. And so display drivers and 
audio and all of the little things they've got vert IO drivers. And so the thing where I've seen it be particularly beneficial is network and display. So when you're wanting to do stuff with RDP and have multiple displays and go to different places, or if you have something that's incredibly taxing on the network interface, switching to the vert IO as opposed to the generic, it's like an Intel E1000, something like that. If you switch over to the vert IO drivers and use the drivers put out by Red Hat, the performance is noticeable to say the least. So Steve, you, you've included the 9P drivers here in the show notes as well. Yeah, and there's also man, pa man pages from Ubuntu for this. So uh, at least dating back to Trusty. So I, like I said, I'm relatively sure it comes bundled by default in Ubuntu, but for sure it's in the repos if, if it's not bundled by default. But if you're on a RHEL-based system, you'll have to figure out how to install that. So we both kind of flew past this, but there's nothing wrong with NFS, right? I mean, set up properly, that should be an option as well. Yeah, so I use NFS uh, for all of my stuff. There's there's a couple of caveats here, but largely the the reason why we avoided it was just because the the writer says, "Hey, I'm already doing this. What I'll, what other options do I have?" Um, I'll just toss this out here. If you're running something like Jellyfin, you'll have a bad time. Well, not a bad time. You'll have a workaround that you'll have to implement if you're running over NFS because they use um, IF Notify, which is uh, like an iNotify kind of daemon to determine when do I have new files. So one of the things that Plex does is when you add a, a new file to your system, it will automatically scan that so that you don't have to scan the entire library and just add that single file. Jellyfin has this, but they do it via a kernel call, which does not work if you have NFS because the server that rec recognizes a new file exists, the kernel that exists on the server itself. So you've got an NFS server and you've got the client, the client being Jellyfish, mm -hmm. Jellyfin. If you drop a new file on your NFS server, that is the kernel that recognizes, hey, a new file exists. That does not get passed through to Jellyfin, and Jellyfin does not pick up the new file until you run a, like a, a library scan. So there are some caveats for using NFS if, if iNotify or ifNotify is one of those things that, that you need to have for your workload. 1-855-450-NOTES-855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. So links to all the things we're talking about, they'll all be available for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. And huge thanks to Rod for pointing out some of these, some of the things that we we overlooked and, and didn't dig into with as much depth as we would have liked to. So I appreciate you bringing it back to the forefront of our attention. Eddie writes in with our third email tonight and says, good evening, guys. <laughs> I like that you shorten it up. So, hey, Noah, I've been listening to you since last, and I appreciate everything that you and Steve are doing for the community. I'm enjoying your new show and your co-host, Steve, as well. I have Manjaro KDE desktop and a Ricoh MP6055 copier printer scanner on the network for an office that's just printing mainly black and white documents all day. I have it working perfectly fine using the manual URI, and then he specifies the IPP focal IP address slash IPP slash print and the PS drivers, but I was curious to see how everyone else is doing it. That seems to be a bunch of different options. Manual URI, Internet Printing Protocol, also known as IPP, IPP over HTTPS, IPPS, HP socket or AppSocket JetDirect, and LPD, LP. R host or printer, which do you use? Cup says its only native protocol is IPP. And then he gives some of the commands that he's using. What do you use and why? So I'm going to start with this. So I'll start with what I have done in the past. Then I'm going to throw it to Steve, who, if you didn't catch last week's interview with Te Competa, he goes through why the way that you're doing it with IPP and the way that Steve is doing it is really the future because it's going to lead, well, it is, we are at driverless printing, um, and that's that's possible thanks to the implementation of IPP. But I will tell you, personal experience, I've always had really good luck with with HP and Canon printers as far as getting them to work under Linux. When you when I have clients that have had those printers, I've never had an issue getting them to work. And HP actually published or open sourced. A, a a printer set of tools that you could install so that you could be able to talk to HP printers. And I, it was, it's great because it'll, you know, if you bought, bought an HP printer, it was going to work. 
since spending some time with Tay, I now understand that those manufacturers play some games with printer and toner cartridges. And so if you're really looking to support a company that just wants to sell you a good printer, maybe those aren't great options. But to that end, if you're using a Canon or HP printer, using the HP Jet Direct is a great way to talk to those devices. Canon, oh, by the way, makes all of the printers for HP. It's just the HP printers with a different label on it or HP or Canon printers with a different label on it, depending on how you want to look at it. So th- it, that's where that Jet Direct option is. In general, you we've moved away from doing LPD or line printing, Damon. Tay goes into that in some detail in last week's episode. So again, I'll let him explain what LPD is and and where that comes from. So then you're left with IPP and IPPS. Obviously, if you can encrypt it, do so. If the printer supports it, I presume that it'll automatically take you to the IPPS link. Otherwise, you can use IPP. And for that, I'm going to let Steve chime in here. So you've been adding printers via IPP since IPP has been a thing. Yeah, um, I, I have one small exception. I had a Samsung printer that the best option for me was the HP direct. Um, but okay. that Samsung printer was, uh, I, I got that in college <laughs> as like a door prize for something. And that thing lasted me through my, uh, master's thesis and only died sometime after I got married. So that was the last time that I used something other than IPP. And part of the reason for that is, uh, your immutable distros and things where you can't add drivers, mm-hmm. they only support printers with IPP. So uh, that like, yeah, that is part of the challenge when you have a system where you where you can't add drivers. But also on top of that, if you actually use Ubuntu or any of the other ones that try to be helpful and auto discover a printer, that's how they're doing it. They go out and scan for the protocol and anything that listens to that ends up getting added sometimes multiple times uh, to your printer list. When it all works fine, it would be great. The problem is sometimes it produces, how shall we say, less than consistent results. So for the best results, go through the ad printer dialogue, specify IPP, specify the IP address as you're doing. Um, and, and, and as you figured out and as you point out in, you know, in your email, it will do the get printer attributes and the printer will report back and say, here's how you print to me. And then you will send it a rasterized format and it will just print out every time without a driver. That's the promise anyway. Um, as far as the difference between PS, PDF and PXL, again, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode. I think he goes into that, but the short version is it's the difference between telling the printer in, in PostScript, for example, make lines or dots here or there and sending an actual vector graph like a PDF or a PXL and saying, here's the thing that I want to come out on the piece of paper. Is that an accurate summation of, of Tay's interview last week, Steve? As best as I can understand it. Honestly, <laughs> uh, the printer stuff kind of went a little bit over me. It's one of those things where that's where I'm pretty much an end user. Like if the driver doesn't work and IPP doesn't work, I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for people like Tay who do dig into some of that and make it work so the rest of us schlubs can just click add printer and it shows up. Driverless printing, it's calling my name. Our fourth email comes in from Joshua. Joshua writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve, long time returning listener. I don't really have a question, but may have many soon. After a long time out of the game, I've been hurled back into a new IT job. I haven't had any formal experience in the tech support oriented job references is sysadmin. So I imagine the small business will have me being in the one-stop tech person for everything. I guess saying no is important while balancing implementation of systems I'm more familiar with. I'm likely the only Linux guy in a business that supports clients using their personal devices. So I need to simultaneously familiarize myself with things like Microsoft SharePoint teams while finding ways to implement and bridge to open source technology, but still supporting clients who are familiar with the old system. There's also cleaning up, documenting, and maintaining a part-time IT solutions of the past. Luckily, plugging a lot of bad practices and security holes and implementing backup protocols. Where would you first start with trying to get your head wrapped around all these systems, which are likely in need of fixing and overhauling, but largely functional? Joshua. So, Steve, where would you start? So it depends on what my overall objective was. If it was, I have worked at the company and I perceive that there is pain being coming, like largely people complain about blah, then that would be the system I would start investigating first. Like what, 
what can I do to make people's lives easier? Because your big win, even if it takes you a lot of time, is alleviating the, the pain points for, for people. Notwithstanding that, like if people are not complaining or not really complaining, then I would go about what is my biggest thing? Like what do I just absolutely <clears throat> SharePoint <clears throat> hate dealing with <laughs> and see what I can do to get rid of that or, or minimize my pain? What would you do? So we, I find myself in this position not uh, not all too fired on often, right? And so we just at the end of this year, we took on a client and their story is fairly familiar. We came in, they didn't know anything about their own IT environment. And so they're saying, hey, all we know is we can't open our business because the, the computer systems are down for like an hour or two and we just come in and just hope that they can come back up. So we want to get an idea wrapped around our heads around where we're at. What I always tell clients is like, now, this is the small business side of me, right? But that's my opportunity to learn where I have an opportunity to serve you. So I'm never going to charge you for coming out to look at what we had my head wrapped around. So again, that part doesn't apply to you, Joshua. That's, again, more the small business side of it. But but we do that. That's step one is here is laid out documentation style, everything that I found. Here's where your core switch is. Here's where your router is. Here's the things that are connected. Here's to the best that I understand it, how your business thing of checking things out there and taking money in over here and paymenting things over there and communicating with customers this way. This is how it all works together. And here's what I understand to be the critical pieces in between all of those. And I've literally had business owners to include this one at the end of this last year that we onboarded as a new client, look at me and go, that's the first time anybody's ever explained that to me. I always thought, and then they go on with their preconceived notions of, well, we thought the server was over here. We didn't know he had a server. We didn't know. Sometimes they don't know. So just explaining that or having your own head wrapped around it. So when you sit down, Joshua, with the owner or with your superior and they go, how are things going? You can say, well, got my head wrapped. Still don't know a lot because I'm still feeling around as your sole IT guy, as, as, as the guy. But what I've learned so far is here's the stuff that I need to immediately be aware of that is going to, to go out. Here's the stuff following Steve's advice that people are chirping about. So I want to be aware of that because that's my most immediate need is to go keep them content and make sure that I'm helping them get to where they need to be. But one thing that you wrote in here stood out that I wanted to address very specifically. You said, I imagine the small business will have me being the one-stop shop tech person for everything. So I guess saying no is important while balancing implementations of system I'm more familiar with. Here's, I would encourage you to change the framework of that in your head from getting good at saying no and balancing implementations of system you're more familiar with, with finding a way to say yes. Sometimes finding a way to say yes means giving in to, to proprietary stuff because you got to meet people where they're at and help them get where they're going. It's a much lower it's a, it's a much easier road to hoe than to try to get people on your bandwagon and take them to where you're going. So that's thing one that I would encourage you to consider. Within the big picture, though, your job as a technical steward is to say, okay, what these people really want, what they really want from you is the lowest friction path in order to get their job done. And so oftentimes, not always, but more often than not, you know to be true that an open source alternative is going to allow them to achieve that in some ways with less pain points and nobody will be able to take the rug out from under them. So you keep that as your large overall goal. When there's an opportunity, I have the preparation in place. I'm aware of what projects I would use. I have them all set up to demo or have some way to show or showcase how I would put all those things. And then you wait for your opportunity. And sooner or later, what you will find is the proprietary things that are biting you and causing you a pain will also bite and cause them to be a pain. And that's your opportunity to jump and go, I have a better alternative ready to roll for you. And that's that whole preparation, meeting an opportunity thing, as opposed to coming in and saying, with the with the the expectation of telling people no your job as the it guy is to find a way to tell people yes um <laughs> i can i i i just know that steam probably has steam coming out of his ears going boundaries no you have to say something about but so i'll let you address there's a but right say yes but well so i largely agree with what noah is saying i understand the idea that we want to balance so they're coming to you as the expert and that's what you are, regardless of how you feel or what your knowledge is relative to your peers, 
in your organization, if you're the guy or the girl, you are the expert, right? And so there is some level of responsibility you have to make sure that they don't go down a bad path. So I am forever in this category because my job is to serve clients just like Noah. I do it in a different I do it in a different way. Everybody has a different approach. And for me, saying no is is tactical and I will do it and I definitely will stick to it. But you could also handle it by saying yes, but. And what I mean by that is, hey, we want to do SharePoint because blah, 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 whatever, fill in reasons here. Can you make this happen? Yes, I can. Absolutely. Uh, but I want to talk to you about what it is that you're actually trying to achieve, right? And the if you say no or some form of negativity at the start, that puts them back on their heels. If right. you start by saying, yes, I can, and I'm going to follow that up by, I really want to understand your use case, um, that will go over much better. Even if you say, yes, but I'd like to understand the use case because perhaps there might be something better out there that will better serve your needs. And that is the situation that I'm often in. I'm perhaps more than Noah, I'm in a more of a combative spot with clients <laughs> because uh, sometimes one group will call me in and I have to be the expert, which is fine, but another group is going to be pushing back against me because maybe I'm stepping on their territory or you know those sorts of things. And a big part of being in that position is figuring out what kind of wins can I get for you for yeah. both sides? Right. So, um, where do the, the East wall and the West wall of Berlin meet? <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Sometimes it's a lot more, uh, I'll just tell like a 30 cent, well, two minutes. Cause I can't do anything in 30 seconds, but a, a two minute story about how I was at a client last year and they really, really, really hated their network team. I mean, like, like vitriol, they hated their network team. Every, everything was a network problem. And the network team was very tired of being flogged for absolutely everything, even when it wasn't their fault. And there's no way to, as an outsider, come in and, and bridge that gap. But what you can do is I was able to get both sides to agree to open up, uh, systems to the other person. So the issue was that there was just this giant wall and nobody had information about what was happening on the other side of the wall because, because of this animosity. So here's what I did. I, I went to the networking team and I was like, so like when you get a report, do you under like, do the people giving you a report actually give you meaningful information? Keep in mind, these are two technical groups talking, right? This is not an end user reporting a network problem. This is one tech group reporting a problem to the networking team. Networking team was like, no, they don't. Like it always ends up chasing our tails because all they say is like, hey, we had a problem, but they can never tell us source or destination, like whatever. We don't get a good bug report. And I go to the other team and I say, you know, like, does the network ever have issues that you can't put your finger on, but your application is getting blamed for because, you know, you have some problem and it turned out to be an issue with the network. And that is a resounding yes, because they hate the networking team. Good. I have something to work with. Here's what you do, guys. Hey, networking team, if you give them like just the bare bit of, of uh, insight into your system, give them a little tiny slice of this monitoring thing and tell them what they're looking at. Then when they have a problem, they will be able to say, hey, we looked at it. I like I see in this graph that you give us access to, it seems to have an anomalous here, right? And from the other side, you can say, hey, guys, if you actually go out and learn a little bit about what they're doing over there, you can prove it's not you. And that went over super well. And so sometimes your, your position of, how do I deal with a, a tricky situation or saying no or whatever comes down to just figuring out what is motivating the people themselves and then kind of working within that framework. Yeah. And finding a way 
to help to, to, in your case bridging two teams to come together but oftentimes I would imagine that in Joshua's position he's going to find himself between one of the end users and either a budget constraint or upper management right and the same tactic applies there help find a win help facilitate a win you'll become everybody's best friend it's easy to say no lots of people that can say no you can find people off the street and say hey you want to be the IT guy stand here and 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 make sure to have good boundaries they'll tell you no all day that that's great those people are easy it's much much more difficult to find somebody who's willing to say yes and the other thing as you were talking about your approach Steve one of the things that dawned on me as I have taken similar approaches I don't think I've ever had a user come after me for wanting to better understand their problem if anything they get happy that the nerd is excited about their problem and is owning it as my own, right? So it it turns into this thing of they're like, oh, wow, he, he's, he really cares about that. He really wants to solve it for me and get it. Now, meanwhile, in my head, I'm looking through and going, oh, okay, that's how we do it. That's the features you rely on. Great. Awesome. C file has that, that. That's missing that. We could fix that. We can do it this way. This is the workaround. Got it. Perfect. And, you know, and then you can move on. But just kind of having your head in that, I think, I think Joshua has his head in the right big picture space. Um, I think there's just there's there's little ways that you can tweak it to lessen the friction so that you become the guy that everybody turns to with their problems, which is the goal of being an IT person, right? Absolutely. Choosing what platform you want to be on, it's a decision that all of us make and make for various different reasons. Steve, you are not... Um, how do I put this lightly? A huge LinkedIn user, to say the least. But you struggled with getting logged into your LinkedIn account, and it there's a, there's a whole big long thing that follows this. But tell me about getting locked out and deauthorized from LinkedIn. So I, I imagine it's just part of standard practice. I have my desktop hasn't changed. My IP really hasn't rolled over. I'm coming at, at very least. I'm coming from the same city and state that I have for LinkedIn for the last three years. But my laptop and my desktop both got deauthorized at some point, which is, no, not a big deal. I go to log in and there's a little like, hey, we're gonna send this code to your phone, but they still had my Canadian phone on tap, which tells you how long ago it was that I was last deauthorized. But they had a little button that said, you know, email me the one-time code. So I do that and I get the email and when I clicked on the email, I, it takes me to the page and then just says an unknown error has occurred. So I tried copying out the URL and I, the same thing. And I tried various browsers in case it was like some of the plugins or something that was playing havoc with uh, Firefox, all the same issue. So finally, I'm like, okay, fine. What do I have to do to recover this? So they're like, you know, it's click here to recover your account sort of thing. Brings you to this page and it's like, with your mobile device. And I'm like, I'm out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know who I am? I'm Steve Evans. I don't use phones. No. Well, I mean, that is that is an unfair characteristic. I don't use phones, but it had nothing to do with do you know who I am. Right. But, yes. Um, I, I, I did skim the page even after having decided I wasn't going to uh, follow through with this. And they wanted me to use my phone to send them government-issued ID so that I could... <laughs> You know, they would grace me with the ability to use their platform. Like, no, I am 100% out of this. Like, I don't care that much. Yeah. There's there's so many problems with this. Like, so, okay, you, you want to have, you want me to use my phone. Like, so I LinkedIn, every time you log in, mm -hmm. you immediately get an email that says, hey, use the, use the phone because it gives you a better experience. Like immediately, mm -hmm. I've been getting this for the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. And then you've on top suffered of that, with a bad experience for the last few years. Yeah, right. Uh, but on top of that, <laughs> they want me to send them my government ID. Mm -hmm. And I think this phone. is just, yeah, through a phone, which is, <laughs> I, I think is just ludicrous. There's so many issues with this. Like, your phone is probably the least secure thing that you have. It travels to God knows which network on on what kind of public Wi-Fi or anything else. And if you happen to not be tech savvy and maybe you're running an older version of Android because, you know, the your carrier hasn't patched it or, or you know, fill in the blank here. And then on top of that, you want me to give you a literal gold mine for identity theft like yeah for them to store idea. where by the way yeah 
my government ID, you want my government ID, which could literally be used to to ruin my entire life should this get leaked out and someone do something ridiculous with it. No, no, I will not do this. So here, here, I guess here's what I take away when I hear that story, Steve. The first thing I take away is, you know why they all want a phone number? They want it tied to a positive identity match. And phone numbers cost money. And so if you have a phone number, then you have a billable contact. If you have a billable contact, there's some way to pin that to a person. And I know there are some ways that you can get around that, but not many. Largely, phone numbers are tied to real people, and it's an expensive thing to spoof or an expensive thing to try to circumvent. It Certainly, it's impractical to do it in any, in any large scale. So this works for him, right? But the thing that is really, really uncomfortable, once you lose access to the phone number, which, oh, by the way, you never really controlled in the first place, right? It was out of the kindness of the, I suppose, what, the Canadian government that allowed you to have that phone number for the time that you were there. And when you switched agreements and said, I'm now going to do business with this company over here, that phone number may or may not follow you depending on, you know, the details of that transaction. So... To me, it's a it's a it's a warning. Be aware of the services that require you to have a phone number on file and then make a decision for yourself. Like, do I need that thing in my life? There are some things that I have learned that I can't live without. Like I'm going to have a bank account and if I'm going to have a bank account, they insist for two factor authentication that I use a phone. They don't have email as an option. So my options are I can bridge something like a JMP number to an email bridge or some, you know, something. But at the end of the day, it's coming through an insecure SMS message. There's nothing I can do about that. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you look at it, at some point, my fear is that the replacements for these things will be worse, not better. Because at some point, they're going to want to integrate that experience into their own app whether, rather than relying on more open things like SMS. You think I'm wrong about that? <laughs> Uh, I don't think I want to turn this into Steve rants for an hour. So I think I'll well, pass. <laughs> but your but your point is well, you know, it's it's a service that you didn't really care about to begin with, and they tried to hold this thing over you and you said, I'm out. Yeah. I mean, if they had a I understand that SMS is terrible and can be spoofed, but I mean if if there was some other way to well, I guess they wouldn't have been able to do SMS because they had my old full number. And that's where we come full circle. But there is no way for me to get around that. There was no, hey, call this or do some sort of like, you know, I call in and I can tell you the phone number and the last time that I used it. And like, I, I have all that information. Um, and there there should be some balance, I think, between you need to send us your government ID and uh, recovering your account with just an SMS. So tied to your your LinkedIn story. So I hadn't been on LinkedIn for years. I, I log in there once every four or five years, or if I go to some event and somebody adds me, I'll log in, but largely don't use it. And when I signed up for Beeper, they had the ability to bridge to LinkedIn. And I thought to myself, that's a silly thing. I'm not, I don't really, I don't even know anybody on LinkedIn, but I wanted to test the bridge. I wanted to talk about it on the show. So I figured oh, I'll give it a shot. So I signed into my LinkedIn account through Beeper and ended up getting a message from somebody in the local community that said, Hey, can I come on, on your show? And can we, can we chat? And it turned out to be a really meaningful connection. Wouldn't have made that connection if I had only relied on, if I hadn't been available on, on LinkedIn. So I'm, I'm at this weird position, Steve, where I, when I hear the story that you tell me, it fills me with rage and I don't want to participate in that. I just don't, I don't, they need me on that platform more than I have any desire to be there. If that's what it comes down to once, once you have to have my telephone number and I have to start sending you my government ID through your means and through software, you force me to install on a device that I own, not you. I don't like it. So I want to push back against it at the same time. I want to have friends. I don't want to be friendless, Steve. So I'm not sure what to make of this is this, you know, this seems like this could be a really great thing. Here's the problem. Beeper made CBS news. And not because of the groundbreaking work that they're doing with Beeper. They made CBS Morning News because they're effectively giving up on the on the on the on on this iMessage bridge, which Steve and I kind of said from day one was kind of host. Quote, each time Beeper Mini goes down or is made unreliable due to interference by Apple's Beeper credibility takes a hit. It's unsustainable. As much as we want to fight what we believe is a fantastic product. 
that really should exist. The truth is that we can't win a cat and mouse game with the largest company on earth. With our latest software release, we believe we've created something that Apple can tolerate existing. We do not have any current plans to respond if the solution is knocked offline. The iMessage connection software that powers Beeper Mini and Beeper Cloud is 100% open source, and they put a link to it, github.com slash beeper slash iMessage. Anyone who wants it can use it or continue development. In the new year, we're reshifting our focus back to our long-term goal of building the best chat app on Earth. So, so much there to unpack. The first is... At the end of the day, you're only going to be able to bridge with these companies that want to bridge with you. And Apple was never going to be that thing. The positive side of this, Steve, I am kind of happy. Is it, it, it gets me in my happy place that like Beeper is turning the attention of the mainstream media so that we're at least having the conversation of all of these people over here want interoperable communications. Oh, by the way, the EU is going to require this in up and coming years. Facebook has gotten on board. WhatsApp has gotten on board. Matrix is building solutions to help these companies get this on board. Apple says, well, Apple says that they're not really a mainstream messaging application, even though greater than 50% of U.S. citizens have an iPhone and thus are on iMessage by default. I'm, so I'm just I'm not sure what to make on all this because it, it's all kind of the same thing, right? Your frustration with LinkedIn, you want to maintain a presence there, kind of, because there might be some people that you'd bump into or want to stay connected to, but it isn't enough that you're willing to to, to make meaningful sacrifices to your to your privacy and to the, your, the security of your privacy. It seems like Beeper might be an in-between thing, but it seems like companies on the other end aren't willing to let the open source guy through the front door. So where does that leave? Where does that leave us? I mean, it leaves us in the same place that we were before the open source guy showed up on the stage to begin with. So it, this battle has been going and probably will continue to rage for a very long time. I don't see this changing anytime soon. Tiny in the chat room says, I'm so glad that my wife is my LinkedIn mule. So I don't know about you, but I have absolutely done that. I haven't done that with LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn directly. But absolutely with other platforms and other things, my wife has an account. I'm like, that's nah, good enough. I mean, uh, she, she can get onto it and then I can I can log in and I can see what I need to see. And so uh, no real reason that we both need to have an account. And I just, just kind of use her as the front runner. Is that uh, at all a practice in your house or is it everything? If you want to well, be there, it, you're there. If you're not there, you're not there. It may surprise you or may not surprise you, but we don't really share passwords. We, we do have... Um, we do have Bitwarden and there are some passwords we share like Jellyfin and, and Com and stuff like that, but I don't have her Facebook account and she doesn't have any of my login stuff. And so it's that's that's a me choice. That's not a her choice. Gotcha. Uh, you know, have Sarah ask her sometime about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the deal. At the end of the day, it's I mean, I think for like personal stuff, I I can I definitely I can kind of see it. I guess where I was getting at was stuff like and I guess you don't deal with this directly, but like kids school lunch money and stuff like that it's just it's enough if she's got a foot in the door then i don't have to i don't have to play the other side of that but it it's an interesting world we're embarking on and i, I feel it interesting that both of you and i are taking similar approaches in that we're not going to be married to a phone that's going to pe put people like us on an island we'll see how we fare hey the show if you like it and want to participate in it it's recorded every tuesday at 6 p.m central how do you find it podcast.asknoahshow.com that's how or asknoahshow.com to listen live at podcast.asknoahshow.com you find all of the articles and references we're live on twitter i'm at colonel linux he's at linux ovens the show at asknoahshow we're back next tuesday 6 p.m central asknoahshow.com have a good week